1: Hello movie truthers,
2: welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif.
0: I'm Adam Woodward.
2: And I'm Laura Venning. On the show this week, Taika Waititi goes full 90s nostalgia with Thor: love and thunder. A love is formed between a man and his cabbage-eating robot in Brian and Charles. And on Film Club, it's more robots and space travel in silent running. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So Laura, excited to have you back for another Chris Pratt summer blockbuster.
3: <laughs> I know, I don't quite know how this has happened, um, but somehow here I am again with with Mr. Pratt.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, and hopefully you um, enjoyed it slightly more than you did uh, the Jurassic World franchise, but I mean, at least with Jurassic World, we had you on for a kind of a property that like a franchise that you did care about, you love the Jurassic Park films, but you're not the, you're not
3: a big m c u person are you? I'm not so I'm so sorry to everyone listening who might be hoping for someone with a bit more authority slash investment, although of all the m c u films I've seen, which is I think about a quarter to a third of them sorry um I've enjoyed I was about to say the Thor ones actually, that's not true. I enjoy Thor Ragnarok immensely definitely by far the my favorite of the ones I've seen and the one that I have voluntarily rewatched a few times. Um, and I probably enjoy Thor most as a character within the kind of ensemble, you know, have no fear. I have seen Infinity War and Endgame. I kind of know where I am. But um, so I feel, you know, this of all the MCU films for me to be talking about today, this one I feel a teensy bit more qualified than, than perhaps uh, Adventures of any of the others, yeah.
2: But when you're not kind of being forced by us to go and see, uh, you know, big bloated franchises, what have you been up to lately?
3: What have I been up to lately? Um, So I do a bit of writing here and there for your good selves, obviously. Um, Recently, I also, because I love writing about kind of queer culture, queer cinema in particular. But uh, recently I took part in a piece, sort of collaborative piece for GQ, all about the kind of most interesting British queer cultural moments of the past fifty years is a kind of celebration of the 50th anniversary of Pride. So I wrote a little about uh, the publication of Tipping the Velvet by Sarah Waters as like a big cultural moment and about uh, the saving uh, the campaign to save Derek Jarman's Prospect Cottage uh, down on the Kent Coast as like a monument to the nation. So neither of those are film related, but uh, that's what I've been that's what I've been up to lately. <laughs>
2: Oh, that sounds amazing. Um, I love Derek Jarman's work. Uh, Adam, you're a big Derek Jarman fan, probably more than a big summer blockbuster guy.
0: (laughs) Oh, massively so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, I've actually been down to his, his cottage, um, and and it's got, it's very well preserved. It's got this amazing, you know, kind of garden and in, in, in Dungeness and it's sort of all, yeah, it's basically like a big stony beach, um, and it's a really, yeah, really pretty little site just to kind of go down. And um, if you wanted to make that pilgrimage, I'd definitely recommend it.
3: And a stone's throw from a giant nuclear power station, it has exactly. to be mentioned. So such a strange alien little landscape. Um, I suppose appropriate. We're talking about aliens today. But um, but yeah, a really strange otherworldly spot that, yeah, I would also highly recommend making the pilgrimage.
2: Well, yeah, in between the big summer tent hole in the movies, that definitely sounds... Um, more my speed um but yeah we are in kind of the midst of big summer blockbuster zone Uh, Top Gun Maverick has just made a billion dollars and for some reason Jurassic Park did really well (laughs) (laughs) but I'm wondering are there any actual summer blockbusters that that you're looking forward to or of past years you'd like to see more of that sort of thing
0: well there's one coming up which is I wouldn't necessarily qualify as a a blockbuster in the same sense that maybe Thor or Jurassic World are but um, the new Jordan Peele film Nope which has sort of been pushed back a bit but it's now coming out in August I believe over here and that I think that looks like um, in terms of the kind of scale and scope of the production, it looks like a bit of a step up for him. So that's quite exciting. Um, and always love seeing his his kind of cast of regular actors as well. So yeah, I think I think that would be kind of top of my list. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a pretty barren summer period, I would say, by and large. Post Top Gun.
3: We're all living in a post Top Gun
0: world and, you know, I, I like this world, it turns out. <laughs> is, is is there a new Mission Impossible film coming out? Have I made that up?
2: Yeah, there is. And it involves Sarah Ferguson with an eye patch. And a sword and a bridge in Venice. So I was like, you know, oh
0: am okay. well, I'm, I'm, si- I'm there. Sign me up. Yeah.
2: <laughs> as, as blockbuster franchises go, I've got to say Mission Impossible, pretty solid entries throughout. I think there was one in Abu Dhabi that I thought was awful.
0: The one um, that's um the one that's bad is where they tried to um, crowbar in Jeremy Renner almost to sort of replace mm-hmm. Cruise.
3: Yeah. Why do, why do films keep doing this? I feel like every film I see with Jeremy Renner is in some way trying to crowbar in Jeremy Renner. I think why that was just, like a little, a little phase
0: where they were trying to, <laughs> you know, they, they were sort of seeing the likes of Matt Damon and Tom Cruise maybe ageing and starting to do other projects. And then it was like, oh, this guy. And then, yeah, I think they've um, woken up from that nightmare now, thankfully. Yeah,
1: but why Jeremy
2: Renner
0: of all people?
2: <laughs> like,
0: it must Jeff- have a good agent.
2: Well, certainly he's still got his own show on the MCU. So he's kind of managing to keep doing work. But I I don't know that there is a single sincere Jeremy Renner fan out there. And I say this as a huge fan of Joel Edgerton. So I'm not just against kind of, you know, that <laughs> mid tier of actor. But yes, no, um, he he strikes me as sort of a symbol of everything that's wrong with the film industry, which is perhaps a little bit too much to labour the man with. But, you know.
3: I did just come out of Thor love and thunder, so my rage is at a maximum. I would like to take a moment, though, to mourn the loss of the Jeremy Renner app, which as uh, to clarify, I was never a Jeremy Renner app user, but its existence uh, made me very happy. So, um, you know, mourning that loss still. (laughs) Does it not exist anymore? I think he got rid of it, yeah, which is a a deep shame because it was obviously hilarious. So, uh, yeah.
2: The one good thing he gave us, my goodness. There's only one week left to claim your 30-day free trial of The Little White Lies membership. Join our community of film lovers and receive prints of your choice, monthly film recommendations, exclusive content, and behind-the-scenes access. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Following the events of Avengers Endgame, Thor attempts to find inner peace. He must return to action and recruit Valkyrie, Korg, and Jane Foster, who has become the mighty Thor, to stop Gore the God Butcher from eliminating all gods. So Adam, uh, Taika Waititi, I believe his last entry to to the MCU, Ragnarok, got four stars in Little White Lies, I checked yesterday. Um, Do you think... Maybe what was novel in that film is getting a little stale and unrelenting in God and Thunder.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I I, I must say I'm not, um, you know, particularly au fait with the, the whole Marvel universe beyond having seen the kind of, you know, bigger releases, I would say. I mean, I, I don't think I've seen anything post Endgame. Haven't really watched any of the Disney plus TV shows they've done Um and Ragnarok was probably the last one that I really enjoyed. Um, and actually, you know, sort of quite surprisingly in the, uh, the first couple of Thor films, I think before that were fine. But um, Ragnarok, I think, with Taika Waititi uh, coming in, just seemed to add a bit more personality to it and also seemed to embrace the, the you know, the, the fact that these films are based on, you know, cartoons for children, right? And and I don't think that's that's not knocking them. That's like... Just kind of stating fact, so I think he lent into that in a really fun way, basically, and 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 Ragnarok kind of ticks a lot of boxes for me there. But yeah, this one, I don't know, kind of the chronology and what's kind of happened since Endgame, but it it definitely feels like the the stakes are very low in this one. Um, you know, the, the kind of main uh, baddie played by uh, played by Christian Bale, who's a kind of like sad dad with. Um, and And a sort of overzealous atheist, let's say, and he he's sort of going around trying to kill all the gods in the universe and 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 it's sort of very hard to care too much about the loss of you know immortal beings um generally I'd say as a rule i'm i'm not I'm not that invested in like the lives of gods, so you know that that was a bit of a hard sell for me, and I just think maybe it lacks a little bit of the charm and some of the character from from Ragnarok and I think I think you used the word stale before, but yeah the the character even that YTT voices, the kind of I forget the character's name, but the the Big Rock bro Korg is uh yeah, definitely too too much Korg in this. I think the first time it was like, oh, this is quite a fun character. Let's let's have more of Korg. And now it's like, oh my God, Korg, just please <laughs> shut shut the fuck up. Um and, and why tt does this kind of quite tedious voiceover as well, which is I guess trying to fill in a few gaps of, of what's happened. You know, just post game trying to catch people up a little bit, which I suppose is useful, but just delivered in, in quite a kind of annoying way, to be honest. Um, and yeah, I, th- I think there's something in this. I think this film really encapsulates where, certainly in terms of its cinematic output, because, you know, from what I gather, the TV stuff is... Is uh, is going great guns. They seem to be making lots of shows, and and they seem to be fairly well received. Yeah, with all these little spin off <laughs> characters and stuff. I mean, you know, One Division was the one that I think people seem to latch on to. But uh, it's
2: been I've... a while since Wonder Oh, has it? Okay, sorry, but <laughs> I, but I but sat you know Moon Knight. So.
0: Okay, well, I'm not counting the kind of B-tier stuff, but the you know, the, the keys and the WandaVisions and things like that seem to have been where their, I guess, creative energy and focus has been. So, yeah, I think that with the cinematic landscape now post-Endgame, it feels, I mean, it's very um, telling, I think, that when we kind of first uh, returned to Asgard, which is this kind of hitherto quite humble fishing village, it's now been turned into this quite kind of tacky theme park um and it's like you know what what did Martin Scorsese say about these films um and and I thought that I thought that was very yeah quite interesting and and sort of says a lot about where these films are cinematically
2: I couldn't kind of get my head around a scene in that theme park that is Asgard where she's doing like an advert for Old Spice but I think this is Tessa Thompson yeah and she's kind of I couldn't tell if this is product placement or a commentary on product
0: placement i think it is for me that was like so she's supposed to be is she the mayor or 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 she's she's some sort of you know she has some sort of civic position Mm -hmm. and and she um but also seems to be kind of like running the theme park and everything so i think it is a bit of a comment on you know the commoditization of of kind of marvel or, or maybe even deeper like the marvelization of everything basically but but But, um yeah sure but
2: she's also doing a direct line ad so it's like it's not really like you know
3: you talk about blaring of boundaries
2: yeah yeah what are you poking fun at and what is actually just
0: you know capitalism yeah i don't think it's maybe that thought thought out that well to be honest
2: but Uh, um in terms of taiko atiti for you laura um he is some he's quite a Marmite type of person I seem to be able to love him and hate him and I actually do quite like most of his films and find him personally still unbearable like what is your relationship with him because for me this was just way too much Taika
3: yeah I think this was slightly guilty of him at his worst um I say that Jojo Rabbit is a film that exists um and that we all suffered through um (laughs) yeah I I first sort of Discovered who he was, I suppose, along with a lot of people when What We Do in the Shadows um was this huge sensation suddenly. Uh, the film that is, not the not the TV show that it later uh spawned. Um, and really in- enjoyed his shtick. It was, i think back then it did feel like something slightly different. It kind of coming from that same uh very New Zealand brand of comedy, your kind of your flight of the concords and um
1: and kind of others
3: of that ilk and I have a lot of love and a lot of time for Hunt for the Wilder People I think that is a pretty watertight uh, comedy adventure I think it's it's a perfect blend of comedy and pathos and it's got some very strong performances you know Sam Neill really is just wonderful in it so um, and you know, I think in that film, you know, Taiko Waititi restricts himself to a very, very brief cameo in that film and it's funny and then it's done. Perfect. Um, and yeah, I, I, I did love, I did love Thor Ragnarok. Um, Jojo Rabbit really soured, really soured him for me. So I didn't know quite how I would feel coming into this, having, having Jojo Rabbit be the last thing that, uh, that I saw by him. And yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, there is way too much Korg in this. I think the authorial stamp is uh, too large. Um, but yeah, I, I'm kind of like you, Layla. I have a bit of a mixed uh, mixed feelings towards him. Um, and I kind of wish he would uh, he would go back to his roots and make some smaller comedies, but uh, but here we are. He doesn't seem to be hugely interested in that, considering I think he's doing a Star Wars thing next is that right did that already happen I've slightly lost track
0: (laughs) sounds about right doesn't it
3: yeah yeah the the kind of the line from from small indie director to Marvel and Star Wars (laughs) yeah
0: I think what I would say picking up from what you were saying about um, Hunt for the Wilder People and even Jojo Rabbit you know um, I I wasn't particularly a fan of that film but I think it shows where his strengths lie in terms of and, and I guess his interests lie in terms of creating these films from um often from like a, a child's point of view, and he's you know he's quite actually adept at that. If you go back all the way to kind of Boy, one of his much earlier films. And it was interesting in this that one of the kind of main um you know subplots is that there's there's a load of children from Asgard who've been kind of taken hostage by this by Christian Bale's villain. But he doesn't really go anywhere with it. And I was really surprised he has all these kind of young actors to work with. There's a kind of scene where you know they get to do a bit more towards the end, but I, I thought that was a little bit wasted, and you know would have liked to have seen more of him working within that. You know, um, like you say, that kind of comedy space a bit more, but working with the younger actors. Um, there is a bit of a scene near the end with a young actor who who I thought was very funny and and very cute in the in the kind of brief moment she was in it. But again, it kind of comes too late by the, by that point. So yeah, I'd like I'd like to see him maybe go back to to working in that mode a bit more.
2: Yeah, I mean it. it it seemed very strange that there were certain plot points that were like really underserved. Like we just kind of see, um, mighty Thor appear powers and, and, you know, as a Supreme fighter, there's no kind of thing about what it is like to get those powers or what it means or her kind of toying around with them. But then we're given a strangely long time to like this joke that was already in the first one with these Matt Damon and his brother playing each other and the Sam Neill cameo. Like stuff that really, I wonder whether it's just after the success of Ragnarok, this is just a very undisciplined thing. This is just kind of a little bit like a guy who's like, oh, this is what I think is funny. People want more of me. They want more of my in-jokes. And as a result, I think to me, it was just a complete mess. And it did remind me a lot of um, the Northmen in a weird way that were kind of using these like Viking symbols and and, and stuff like that in a way that um, just felt so like thoughtless in comparison. Um, I mean, one of the worst elements for me was uh, Russell Crowe showing up as kind of Zeus that, you know, and that's a great actor. That moment should mean something. But I mean, did that. Did any of the kind of
3: Zeus stuff work for you, Laura? <laughs> I honestly thought that was quite funny, but I mean, maybe, I, I, I don't know. I think it felt like a bit of a departure from quite a long period of fairly bland, we're zooming through space stuff that I was like, oh, here's someone coming on and doing their pantomime bit. I mean, yeah, of course it was absolutely ridiculous. I, I But I think the section I enjoyed the most was we're in this absurd, gilded CGI screensaver, infinity screensaver, you know. Um, And here comes, you know, uh, an actor who is kind of knowingly let go of his once sort of, I don't know, I'm thinking back to his time as, you know, in Gladiator, his kind of peak action star, you know, he's kind of let that go. He's coming on and doing something very, very, very silly. Um, I imagine that was supposed to be a Greek accent.
0: Uh... Well, it reminded me and maybe like this might be a bit of a kids ask your parents moment, but it reminded me of like the Harry Enfield um, character Stavros, which is like this very crude kind of caricature of a Greek like kebab shop owner, and and I mean he's literally doing that accent in this and and the mannerisms. It was like oh my god! I mean, fair play to Russell Crowe for kind of really, you know, it, it feels like quite a self-deprecating performance, and it, and he's he get I think he gets the silliness of it, but yeah, it's also meant to be quite a kind of serious scene, and maybe those two things don't quite marry up too well, so
3: it is quite bizarre that we have all this all this very 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 silly stuff going on and then every now and then we veer back to cancer it's like jesus christ like i think there is a tonal mismatch and you know i get it's it's difficult because you need something real to kind of underpin all of this kind of neon zooming around um but it doesn't it's just too far in the other direction i think in ragnarok it it worked a bit better because you know, there was a real sort of the relationship between the brothers just kind of works. There's kind of some stuff underpinning there that, that feels real. Um, But it, it, you're, you're not kind of clobbered every kind of 15, 20 minutes with a reminder that this is cancer. There's cancer. There's stage four cancer, which I just, that oh, they, really they kept didn't saying, work.
0: It's stage four. It's stage
3: four. I was like, yes, okay, <laughs> I'm listening. Like I've been listening this whole time. I get it. Um, And I think also, I mean, Leia and I were kind of having this conversation earlier in terms of the way that Marvel movies represent bodies and for both kind of, you know, all genders of of its cast members and something really quite strange. And I don't know if I, I I don't quite know what to make of it. The veering from Natalie Portman with these extreme kind of pumped up arms um, and to her in her sort of, human state when she's very, very frail and emaciated. And something about that whiplash did not sit well with me, but I can't quite put my finger on why.
0: Mm. It, do, I mean, it does, it is kind of explained within the logic of the film, but it is, like you say, just that switch between, you know, the kind of japes of of them, you know, hopscotching around the universe, defeating various, you know, ne'er-do-wells and then, and then crashing back into this stage four, triple underlined like oh you're meant to feel sad now and actually I think Chris Chris Hemsworth for all that I, I think he's like a quite a funny performer and he's very good as Thor I think those kind of more serious moments didn't didn't quite land for me I think I think it's not strictly his fault but yeah I think where you've got a really a, a, you know a, a, an actor with really serious like dramatic chops and Natalie Portman I'm not saying Chris Hemsworth maybe completely lacks that but i think he doesn't quite manage the the gear shifts um, as well and i think part of that is down to the screenplay is down to um Waititi's direction as well but yeah i think i don't know that whole cancer subplot to me felt very glib i don't think it's handled very well at all
2: yeah and he i think ytt doesn't let it ever kind of sit with any significance because the film is so overpacked with jokes um with like almost every line is kind of a little bit of a you know, a little bit of a dig or something. So those moments don't really have any significance. And as we got to the kind of final act, I was still had no real sense of the stakes here beyond stage four cancer, of which nobody seems to be able to do anything despite the fact that everyone is magic and most of them are gods. And then just kind of this like slightly unsettlingly Middle Eastern coded Christian Bale, who seems to at least be having a really fun time as like the mega atheist. But then all the gods seem awful, so I don't really understand. Is is this the bad guy? (laughs) Did you have a sense?
0: Also, there's a weird thing in that Natalie Portman's character in 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 her kind of earthly form is supposed to be. like a like a quantum physicist or something, like she's written a book about like space-time theory, um, and yet she's trying to also find a cure for cancer for herself. And it's like those those are not the same types of science. Like she she kind of gets really down on herself that she she's not kind of you know finding a cure. So it turns to turns to Thor, and it's like, hang on a sec. <laughs> what, what in what universe is she supposed to kind of mirac- miraculously come up with a cure for this? Yeah. Like,
2: um, and then finally, I suppose I just wanted. It. Laura, I'll just ask you that um, in Guardians of the Galaxy, we kind of had um, Peter Quill, who is bisexual in the comics, and in Thor Ragnarok, they did this like slightly odious thing of being like, oh, this is our first bisexual character with Tessa Thompson, even though there is no reference to that on screen. Do you think that was in any way improved upon in this film? Because we had Natalie Portman at our screening coming out and telling us that this film was, and I quote, so gay.
3: Yes, I think she actually even said the word super gay, um, perhaps a little little, little play on the word superhero. Um, I can't believe Academy Award winner Natalie Portman has now lied to my face. Um, This film is not super gay, obviously. I think we all knew that this was total bullshit. Um, I mean, to be fair, it is about as far as I reckon Disney slash Marvel is ever going to go in that... not not in terms of um uh, Peter Quill, who is actually only in this film for about five minutes at the beginning. Um I think he there's quite a lot of him in the trailer as far as I remember, and and really the Guardians of the Galaxy disappear very early on. So they're slightly they're not, you know, hugely relevant to this film. Um and um and in terms of Valkyrie, it's a bit better. I mean, oh god, it feels depressing like quantifying this stuff. There is um, there is Korg. Oh God, that! Oh, but don't. That, but that, I mean, is that enough?
0: I was thinking, like, is this enough to get this film banned in like Saudi Arabia? Or you know, I'm not sure it is. I think it's quite. it's, yeah. it's kind of implied. Oh. It's a bit. It's a bit nudge wink, isn't it?
3: It is, and I, I don't know whether. I don't know. I mean, there are there is a there is a gag in um, Thor Ragnarok where it's sort of implied that Loki has been having sex with. Uh, the Jeff Goldblum character to kind of make it to the top of his, uh, you know, his favor, gain his favor, and it's all very wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, isn't it funny the idea of men having sex? And that slightly, that kind of carries over a bit into this one in terms of the Korg stuff. The Valkyrie stuff is not like outwardly odious, <laughs> um, so I guess that's good. You know, she she kisses a um, one of the one of Zeus's like lovely female hangers-on like on her hand and at one point they have a conversation about when the other Valkyries died and Cork says I was about to do an impression I'm not going to do an impression that uh that that maybe her girlfriend died in in this battle and that's it um so I mean it's sort of improved but also I can't really bring myself to care very much about how these films do or don't represent queerness um Because I just don't think we should be looking to these giant commercial films for this. And it continues to baffle me that people place so much importance on it. I don't know, I suppose so many eyeballs all over the world see these films. I guess it is important, but... you know there's so much adventurous exciting provocative bold queer art out there in the world why are we so desperate for these films to to give us these tiny 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 shreds these tiny portions of queer representation and pretend that it's a nutritious meal i who cares stop (laughs) that's my take (laughs) who cares stop what a fantastic
2: (laughs) should we do our scores um Adam, do you want to start in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect?
0: Yeah, I, I'd say maybe um, <clears throat> a generous generous three in anticipation, just purely based off um, the strengths of Thor Ragnarok. Um, may, maybe a two in enjoyment. I, th- I think it's just... You know, it's not it's not exactly over ambitious, but it, I think this film tries to do too much, and it's it's kind of all over the place. And it's and it's you know not one of the longer entries into the MCU, but it's still it's still about two hours, and yeah, there's it, there's a lot of kind of filler within that, um, and probably a, a two could this could easily become a one, but I, I'm going to go two in in retrospect for now. Um, I would say as well later that you. You did uh, message saying, "Well, you know, at least the the soundtrack was good." But I I hate to inform you that the soundtrack is also bad.
2: Hey, I know about movies, not about music.
0: I'm never (laughs) wrong otherwise. It's it's just it's basically just Guns and Roses. So you know, if if you like Guns and Roses, maybe this film is for you. But
2: yeah, I mean, the soundtrack isn't like subversive. It's pretty obvious choices, but. Yeah,
0: it was the third one that came in it's like oh they're literally just playing the greatest hits of guns and roses this, this is interesting
2: i am a simple woman of simple tastes it seems um laura what about you
3: um yeah i think like adam i had well probably about three going in because i enjoyed Thor ragnarok so much but that was tempered by my really visceral hatred of jojo rabbit so yeah um, I think while it was happening, maybe a three, I was like, well, this is very flawed, but I am generally having a nice time. Um, I also felt. Can I just say, as someone who is having a lot of problems with eczema, that I felt very validated by Christian Bale's villain. I was like, that is a that is a man having some skin issues, and I relate. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, someone get that man some pseudocrine, for God's I, sake.
3: Really, I was like, oh God, yeah. Like, I really, I really, I feel your pain. It's not fun. Um, and I think a two. In retrospect, it's not awful, um, but uh, I think I think Layla probably thinks other. Otherwise, but it will have completely vanished from my memory in about a week and a half's time um so yeah for that for that it gains a, a mighty two from me um yeah i hated this <laughs> so uh
2: probably three in anticipation again liked ragnarok very much and have a pretty good track record with Tyker. um Actually, maybe for an anticipation, because I also kind of like like this kind of day glow aesthetic and like the nostalgia does very much go to like the cartoons I watched as a child. Um, in Enjoyment 1, I felt like I was just watching a bloated fascist nonsense. And in retrospect, also 1, it almost got to a 2 because of the soundtrack. But now in, in looking back, I just felt like, it was, you know, very, very obvious choices that were being made in that too. So I mean, it's nothing that like the most basic Spotify playlist wouldn't give you. Um, Yeah, no, it just uh, mean, not to kind of accuse anybody of being on drugs, but it felt like a coked up nightmare to me that was kind of conceived by some man child that nobody was saying no to. Um, Absolutely atrocious, in my opinion. So if you've got thoughts on Thor, Love & Thunder, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLives. Next up, Brian and Charles.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: After a particularly harsh winter, Brian goes into a deep depression, completely isolated and with no one to talk to. So Brian builds a robot. Laura, you, um, you reviewed this for the magazine. Um, and you, um, and there was a fabulous line that you had where you said it might test the patience of those who are allergic to all things twee. Um, was this a little on the twee side for you or did it kind of strike a good balance?
3: Um, I think this was borderline for me. Um, I, listen, I like the Paddington films. I can do twee. Um, it felt very, I mean this film it's 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 very charming in its own way it is very derivative of other things um I think it's hardly doing anything new in terms of its narrative or form um but the character of Charles this this robot that that Brian constructs is just very very it, he's very likable and he is genuinely very funny so I think he his his charm um Will make you forgive the sins of quite a lot of the uh other kind of flaws that this that this film has um you know he's this i don't know kind of seven or eight feet tall strange it's just strange creation this big boxy chest and this kind of mannequin's head with a wig on and he speaks in this very robotic obviously uh sort of voice box um style and you know it did it did make me think about the type of british film that Gets exported or or does well abroad. Um, you know, this film did very well at Sundance uh, earlier this year, and um, it does seem to be that a lot of British cinema, you kind of have to make the choice between twee or kitchen sink, and those are essentially the two types of cinema that British the, the Britain is famous for. And I don't know whether that's a positive thing. This definitely beers on the side of twee, but it is it is genuinely charming um, and it does ironically feel quite bolted together you know I hate to hate to go for the obvious imagery but I but it's genuinely funny and it's obviously going down well with audiences I believe it won the audience award at Sundance London uh last month uh so yeah it's it's very enjoyable while it's happening but it is it is slightly uh ramshackle to say the least
2: Yeah, I think it's one of those films that's very much like the portrait of Englishness as English people would like to see themselves as being kind of like very like lovable eccentrics and, you know, charming and, you know, with the, you know, Brian's silly things like having trowel nets behind his shoes and making like crap inventions and his um, cabbage eating robot. But Adam, did it also work for you in terms of being a portrait of loneliness? Because that's what I found most striking about it.
0: Not, Not really. Um... I don't know. I think it, it initially maybe, um, and I think it, the thing I found most curious, possibly, about this film was the the, the kind of framing of it. Is is you know, it's a kind of initially um, shot in a way where you, it's almost like mockumentary style, um, where Brian is is you know, kind of at home. There's a there's seemingly a camera crew going around, like following his his kind of day to day. Um, of, of really not doing all that much, kind of showing off his various Accenture conventions, um, you know, just pottering around basically in this kind of remote Welsh village. And, uh, it, it, you know, it's quite sweet in those moments. I think it, the humour is, you know, I, I personally, I didn't think it was particularly funny, some of the more quirky kind of character traits that they um, bring to this, but... You know, I was interested by that framing device, and then they kind of abandon it. It just becomes at the second half of the film. You know, where where you've had this handheld kind of more sort of um, you know verite style, it suddenly abandons that and becomes. You know, Laurie, I think you said it's kind of borrowing from quite a few different things, quite derivative, and it and it just yeah it just follows this very rote kind of plot. Um, there's a kind of romance angle there's a local guy who's kind of picking on Brian all the time. And, and, you know, there's also the kind of bromance that buds between him and Charles and uh, yeah, it it doesn't really kind of commit to any of those ideas, particularly it just kind of like follows this very humdrum narrative. And I was a little bit disappointed by that, but I think, you know, this is a film that's heart, uh, it's heart's definitely in the right place. Um, And and as you say, I can see it being a kind of a, a success as an export of, kind of what I think people assume all British films and actually British people are like. Um, I think the Charles character is probably more successful than the the Brian character. It's funny because David Earl, who's who's kind of one of the writers and plays Brian, is kind of a recurring character of his who's appeared on stage and he's appeared in a few kind of Ricky Gervais things over the years. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not particularly a fan of that character, but it's, it is funny that he, he's kind of instantly upstaged by this. I mean, it's a, it's a guy wearing a big cardboard box, but it's still, it still has kind of more soul and, uh, and, and, and character than, than Brian. I think, um, it, it felt to me like the sort of thing Jack Tatty would probably come up with if he was still alive and making films. It's got that slightly eccentric, absurd quality to it, which I think, I think works, um, so yeah, I, I think it's a probably a thumbs up for me for Charles and a bit of a thumbs down for Brian.
2: Oh, poor Brian always struggling to connect
0: with people. Can't can't catch a break, that guy.
2: Yeah, no, I was struck by the um the I what is it about Charles really? Because it is just like it is a it's funny because he's such a kind of craply designed robot, but he's also so endearing, like even the, like the basicness of him kind of makes him seem more human, I suppose. And he doesn't go into that like weird, uncanny valley. I mean, how did you feel about the design elements of it, Laura?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think what works is I think the fact that the head can swivel really helps. And like the, the, he's got this extending neck, which adds a lot of extra characters is otherwise completely blank face and obviously the voice being come you know it's coming out of an automated voice box is not very expressive and something about the the timing of that really works. I think maybe there's something kind of animalistic about it in the way that you just you know an animal will have a blank expression but the timing of the way it tilts its head or kind of moves um really works and actually ironically of course they they mine a lot of humor out of the fact that if you you know the the, the the sheer humor of uh, you take a silly sentence and you put it through a voice box and it's said in this very deadpan style, um, you know, just think of all the kind of appearances Stephen Hawking has made doing these kind of comedy bits, whether it's for comic relief or whatever, it's essentially that gag over and over again. And it kind of, it might taste test your patience, um, but in, in general it does work. And I think we also mentioned this in, in the review of like, there also seems to be a slightly Monty Python-esque touch, to some of the humor but that might just be because the name brian is said in this film about a million times so maybe that's just the association for me if you just have a character endlessly saying brian it's gonna make me think of monty python um but yeah i think the design does work as something believably shit that someone would make in a shed like i do buy that someone could have bolted that together like of course the concept is uh is overall not very believable, but you look at that thing and think, yes, yeah, someone could have built that in, in a shed. Yeah, no, there's the kind of somehow nothing
2: more endearing than a than a craply invented thing. I mean, I suppose it goes to Wallace and Gromit and to, uh, is it Chitty Chitty Bang Bang that he's a terrible inventor? Or oh, one of those. Um, but yeah, let's get some scores on this. We'll probably start with our, I'm going to guess our lowest one, Adam.
0: Oh yeah. Um, I'm not a big fan of, uh, David Earle is someone I quite like as a as a as a kind of voice he does a few podcasts um with the com- with the comedian joe wilkinson and and i think they're a good kind of pair together but i i'm not the brian gittins character that he does i'm not a fan of at all so i would i would have said a kind of two maybe for anticipation um probably a three for enjoyment um i think it just has enough kind of charm to carry it through um but that that would drop back down to a two for me in um in retrospect
2: oh and poor brian
3: tried so hard to please (laughs) Laura what about you um I believe in in the magazine I gave this threes across the board I had I had never heard of David Earl I was not familiar at all although I suppose and you know I'm glad after the fact I found out he someone who worked with Ricky Gervais a lot because that really would have clouded my (laughs) clouded my judgment going in I'm not a fan of Ricky Gervais um yeah I think it's I think it's 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 endearing it's fun um it, it will not leave a lasting impression um but i i would recommend this to people who um who enjoy a bit of light slightly daft comedy um but it probably won't change your life
2: uh yeah no strangely interrupt- um for me probably would have been 344 four, but maybe i'm going to drop down to a 343 because three, somehow now that we've mentioned hunt for the wilder people and I am thinking that like, oh, actually, those sort of like quirky little comedies of these like little rural communities can actually be a little bit better, and more memorable than this. So uh, Taika, you uh, you have done good stuff in the past. So, you know, Brian and Charles leaves on a three with me. So if you've got thoughts on Thor, Love and Thunder or Brian and Charles, you can email truthandboobies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. And next up is Film Club. So, Silent Running, in a future where all flora is extinct on Earth, an astronaut is given orders to destroy the last of Earth's botany, kept in a greenhouse aboard a spaceship. Adam, I'd not seen this one before. Is this your first time coming to it for the pod?
0: Oh, no. Um, I, 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 do you know what? I've, I've seen this film a, a long time ago. Um, didn't have a chance to kind of re-watch it for, for this, but it's still, still kind of relatively fresh. I think... Um, you know if if you're a fan of sort of the kind of new hollywood period it's it's one of those you know classic not not one of the better films from that period but certainly if you want to give someone an idea of like what new hollywood was what new hollywood was about i think show them this because it's kind of like you know quite an ambitious film made kind of quite cheaply but but very well um with a first-time director who really had you know no no experience directing before um you know douglas trumbull well known for his kind of visual effects work on things like 2001 space odyssey and i think there's even some sequences which um were kind of originally developed for that film that ended up in this so you know, I think visually and in terms of its effects, it works really well. And you know, so much of it's carried by Bruce Dern's character. But yeah, it's, it's that curious period in the sort of early '70s where, you know, a big studio was willing to chuck money at a, a, a small project like this and actually, you know, um, put put some money behind kind of releasing it as well. Which you know was, was a kind of wonderful short-lived period in in Hollywood where we're able to to give opportunities to up and coming and 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 sort of more raw filmmakers
2: um Laura Gene Siskel when this came out called it a poor man's 2001 space odyssey i think it's a bit <laughs> i think that's a little bit too harsh but what did you think of um uh what did you think of silent running
3: yeah, I think that is a little harsh. Um, <laughs> I was excited to see this. I'd never seen this before, but that was very kind of aware of some of the iconography. Obviously, the sort of just that image of the, the forest in the dome. Um, I was thinking about it last year when I watched the documentary and now I need to be careful I get the name right. I believe it is called Spaceship Earth. I keep wanting to call it Battlefield Earth. That is not the same film at all. Um, this documentary about this biosphere project in the early '90s, when a group of um, sort of scientists, biologists, went into a real one of these um, uh, kind of biodomes, and the whole experiment failed pretty spectacularly. Um, I was a little disappointed by Silent Running. Is that is that sacrilegious? I think the design is amazing. I mean, the, the that. The opening is so spectacular with this kind of low camera making its way through this very kind of wet, glistening kind of undergrowth um, and this kind of very gentle folk music um, that felt very evocative of that period and that kind of counterculture. And I was really I was really excited about this. But I think for me, the the, the issue is the character or kind of slightly lack thereof of of the protagonist I just didn't find him a very compelling screen presence i sort of I didn't really sort of believe that he felt this terrible guilt of because of course at the in order to save this um these kind of last remnants of of real nature from Earth he has to murder his um crewmates and kind of take care of the place on his own apart from these these um robot helpers uh i just found him a bit blank and kind of lacking into in in interiority um i it just didn't quite work for me maybe there wasn't quite enough of him at the beginning with the others or i i don't really know i just didn't really feel the dramatic weight of that guilt as i was clearly intended to do um so that didn't really work for me, but I think the design is 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 amazing. And, um, you know, these three robot uh, assistants nicknamed Huey, Dewey, and Louie, which is that, the, are those the three ducklings from Donald Duck's relatives? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was like, these names are really ringing a bell, but somehow I, it was conflating in my mind with the uh, three, you know, the chipmunks. <laughs> absolutely not the same yes i know how to be uh getting my getting my small uh my small disney animals confused um yeah i i mean that's when the film really comes to life it's just just kind of spending time in this in this uh geodome biosphere whatever we're calling it um and seeing these these amazing uh these amazing um robots and Operate like I believe that each one had a person inside them, like a bilateral amputee actor performed each one. And you can actually really tell, I think, that that there is because there really does feel like there's human characteristic characteristics there you know i was staring and thinking there's no way that's an animatronic just like the way it moves the way the feet kind of interact with the ground i just you know there must be a real person in there because you can really feel a sense of personality but um yes overall i was i was slightly disappointed although poor man's 2001 i think that is that is still a bit harsh because he is clearly doing something quite different from 2001
0: yeah, I think there's obvious parallels in terms of obviously the setting and the kind of, you know, this sort of last surviving um, astronaut protagonist and the kind of robots. But I think that's kind of where the comparisons end for me. And yeah, I love the design of the robots and the characterization. Like you say, they've got all these kind of various, you know, vents and flaps and things that kind of move and, there's a really, I think there's a really funny, cute scene where they're playing like poker, which, which is kind of quite deep into his, you know, isolation and, and, and sort of, yeah, increasing kind of emotional reliance on these, on these robots. And, uh, yeah, it's, I, I guess you can see, you know, it's a bit of a precursor to more modern films like Duncan Jones moon. And there's even elements of like Claire Denis high life in this, I think that that, that is kind of borrowed from, um, And it it does just about hold up. I mean, yeah, I love the Joan Baez soundtrack. And like you say, it's very kind of like of its time. Um, Certainly, if you think about it thematically and kind of what it's saying about, um, you know, our relationship with nature and with I guess science and robotics and all those things. Um, I think I think it is kind of interesting to view it in the context of when it was made rather than rather than so much now. Um, but yeah, I think it's a it's, you know, I think that's definitely Cisco was was kind of giving it short shrift there. I think it's it's a more interesting and more um, you know, um more kind of like yeah, certainly that like artistically interesting film that maybe he's giving it credit for credit for and and actually i think most films would kind of fall short if you're comparing them to 2001 anyway so i'm not i'm not sure that's particularly
3: yeah i don't fair. think i realized until um i read up on it afterwards quite how near the beginning of the kind of environmental movements this film was i didn't realize quite how ahead of its time it was in the sense of kind of i think save the earth it only really just got going and it was a few sort of, I don't know, five or so years after the publication of Silent Spring. Is it Silent Spring? The Rachel Carson book that was hugely influential in terms of the way we think about the environment and like maybe that, you know, we're we're ultimately harming nature beyond repair. Um, and that, yeah, that really did resituate it. Um, it for me as something a bit more radical than maybe I, I first thought because a lot of these ideas are obviously quite, you know, mainstream now and just accepted. Um, so yeah, more radical than I thought, I think.
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, like now in a world where you've kind of seen Don't Look Up and Wally and, you know, all of those other films, like the idea of like, oh, maybe maybe man's treatment to uh, botany is, is, is not really going on a very good path is a little less exciting idea to engage with. So I think it's interesting that almost all of us, like what we took from it most was like the production design elements.
0: Mm-hmm. And Douglas Trumbull as well worked on um, the Andromeda Strain around the same time, which I think they were released as like a double feature. Um, and and that based on the kind of Michael Crichton book from from the like early 70s. And it's, yeah, it's like interesting, you know, you think about that's kind of height of the Cold War and there's all this this fear of kind of, um, you know, attacks, for you know, biological kind of chemical warfare attacks and things like that. So... It, it, interesting, like, yeah, as I say, looking at it in that context and these, the, is definitely tapping into not just Andromeda strain, but but this film, Silent Running is tapping into kind of these kind of fears and and I guess ideas about the future and what it may have in store for humanity.
2: Yeah, I mean, bringing it back to Derek Jarman, I kind of really enjoy a film like this that is kind of so pessimistic and kind of like I think you can feel like a tangible anger from the point of the filmmaker about like the world in which they are living so take that gene siskel <laughs> <laughs> so if you've got thoughts on these films you can email truth at london.com or tweet us at lwlies next week dakota johnson has some regrets and persuasion coming of age comes with a price in ekiara and for film club we celebrate little white lies latest issue cover film john water's pink flamingos Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Adam Woodward and Laura Venning. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Jake Cunningham.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,.